0: Back in the 1950s, Dr. Donald Cressy came up with the theory of the fraud triangle. And basically, he said, for a fraud to occur, you have to have an immediate need on the part of the perpetrator, an ability to do it, an opportunity, and the ability to rationalize. So if you put those three components together, you're going to have Mm. a fraud.
1: That's a quick sneak peek at this week's episode where we're talking about fraud, how to detect it, how to prevent it, and even what is it. Now, while that is not necessarily a traditional financial planning topic, you can see how for business owners, Being able to detect and prevent fraud can greatly enhance your financial position, because let's face it, once you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars leaving your business fraudulently, that's a hard, hard, difficult hole to dig out of. And these are the kind of resources that I try to bring to business owners specifically, but also bring some topics like this to uh, to individuals that can help my listeners to have better and more complete financial lives. If there's anything keeping you up at night about your money, email me David at parallelfinancial.com. That's david at parallelfinancial.com. I'm always happy to have a 30-minute conversation with anybody. And also, if you've ever thought about selling your business, I do some pretty cool things on the exit planning side. So if selling your business is part of your financial plan for retirement, check out my website, www.allofmyassets.com. Take the value builder questionnaire and uh, let's chat about it. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. This is the weekly wealth podcast with certified financial planner, David Chuddick, where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. And i like to say that we are a financial planning podcast that does not talk about traditional financial planning topics every single episode. So this is going to be a really, really unique and cool and interesting episode today, but it's also going to be an episode that can potentially save business owners tens, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of dollars, quite literally, and also stress and all of the negative uh, issues that that come from fraud. So today we have John Tonsic with us. He's a forensic accountant and a speaker and uh, just a super interesting guy with another major talent. So, hey, John, how are you?
0: I'm fine, David. Thank you for having me here today.
1: Yeah. So before we talk about fraud and forensic accounting, what is your other major skill that you have in life?
0: Well, it's it's a passion that I've had since I was seven years old. I'm uh, also a magician. People wonder what fraud and magic have in common. Actually, it's a great deal because they both involve lying and cheating. <laughs> so I found a way to incorporate magic in my fraud presentations to illustrate the points. And it's uh, it's something people seem to latch on They connect with. So I'm pleased about that.
1: Pretty cool stuff. So a childhood memory that I have, and I may have been, I don't know, somewhere between five and eight years old. Uh, we lived in Queens, New York, and my parents found somebody's wallet. And they ended up tracking this guy down. He ended up being a magician. And uh, so he came on Christmas Day and he did uh, my I'm two years older than my brother and two years younger than my sister. So we got like a a musician show in our house as a thank you for for finding his wallet. And it was the most amazing thing ever. Now, it, it may or may not have been great magic, but it was some some ring magic, some card tricks that. I didn't figure out then, and I sure as heck probably couldn't figure out how they were happening now. So just really, really cool stuff that uh, talking about you know magicians brought back a, a really cool childhood memory of mine, a long time ago, unfortunately.
0: Well, time passes, but obviously he did his job because you couldn't figure it out and you still remember it after all these years, which is a wonderful thing, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we're talking fraud today, and mm-hmm. this is just an absolutely fascinating uh, subject: There, there have been some movies about fraud and, and con artists, and we're going to talk about all levels of fraud. But, but let's let's start off at like the basics of of fraud. Like, what is fraud, and what are some of the more common forms of fraud that might occur in a small business? We're not necessarily talking about Enron and things like that, which maybe you might have some 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 input on. But kind of smaller businesses. What is fraud, and, and And what are some common forms of fraud?
0: Sure. So in layman's terms, a definition of fraud is an intentional misrepresentation relied upon by another to their disadvantage. No such thing as an accidental fraud. Mm -hmm. I have to lie to somebody. They have to believe it. They have to act on the lie, and they have to be hurt by it. The most common ways that it happens, and I deal primarily with organizational fraud, but it affects individuals obviously too. The most common type of fraud is asset misappropriation. People trying to get their hands on physical assets, and most of the time that's cash. The number one scheme typically in businesses involves what we call billing schemes. And it's essentially any way that a fraudster can get a business to pay for something they didn't get or pay for something at a higher price than they should have. Um very very common form of fraud and there, So there something
1: of- that that most people or many people would do and say, well, I mean it's not a big deal. I wrote off my mileage that I was quote working, but I really kind of drove 10 miles to go pick up my kid. That's fraud, right? I mean, it might seem innocent, it might seem like almost anybody would do that, but Times thousands of 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 instances and thousands of employees that could be over from a huge company that can be a lot of money, right?
0: I I have uh, I have an entire presentation that I do on expense report fraud because Mm -hmm. I found that when people steal on expense reports, they're usually stealing every way that they can, and I use that to go fishing. I'll look at expense reports, find somebody that's cheating. And then I go look what else they're doing because they're usually doing more than one thing, and we do tend to minimize it and dismiss it as I saying, mean, "Everybody's oh, just, doing it; it's no big." Yeah, and this is a big company; they don't
1: need for, my money, right?
0: Yeah, I'm not stealing; it's I'm fudging or I'm right. padding. You know, it's it's just we kind of diminish, you know, minimize it, but it's very much a fraud.
1: Okay, okay. So that seems. I mean, that that's that's kind of scary there because I could see how that would be happening on a large-scale basis, taking company office supplies home. I mean, it's just a few pens, a little bit of paper. It's an ink cartridge that I'm just taking home. I mean, and if they would just pay me what I deserve anyway, I wouldn't have to do this. I mean, there's probably a lot of different ways to rationalize fraud, right?
0: That's one of the key components of fraud, Uh, you know, talking about why it happens and why people do it. Um, Back in the 1950s, Dr. Donald Cressy came up with the theory of the fraud triangle. And basically, he said, for a fraud to occur, you have to have an immediate need on the part of the perpetrator, and ability to do it, an opportunity, and the ability to rationalize. So if you put those three components together, you're going to have Mm. a fraud. You can only control the opportunity. You know, the immediate need or the pressure comes from them internally. They call it the unshareable problem. I call it sex, drugs, and rock and roll, because that's usually what it is. Okay. Gambling, drugs, alcohol, boyfriends, girlfriends, that kind of thing can push someone who is normally very honest and has lots of integrity to do things that they wouldn't do ordinarily. Um, in fact, the overwhelming majority of fraudsters, when they get caught, have never been accused, convicted, or anything related to any kind of bad activity at all. It's usually the first first time that they did it.
1: Yeah so you said something about you know people who are normally you know decent people. So I mean how does it happen? How does someone who you know none of us are perfect people but but how does someone kind of fall into that that fraud is it a spiral is it just get out of control or or what happens cuz you hear about some of these huge huge um I had a I had a colleague who who had someone who he thought very highly of and once they found one, it turned out it was I think fifty or a hundred thousand dollars that was just you know little by little, and she was going to replace it tomorrow and it it never happened. so I mean, how does that happen? This was just a sweet little old lady
0: i You wouldn't believe how many sweet little old ladies i've I've found who've <laughs> embezzled money um and actually, what happens is they get themselves in a jam and they don't want to share the cause of the jam with any yeah, so very yeah. often. They'll take something with the idea that they're going to put it back. For example, somebody who gambles all the time. Uh, I lost money at the casino. I need to get it back. So let me borrow a little bit of money, and I'll go see if I can win it back at the tables. So they might win it back once, maybe twice, but eventually they're going to lose because the odds are with us. So finally, they just get behind the eight ball, and they can't—they can't see a way out of it. And. Many frauds go on for a very long time. I think the average duration of a fraud is about 18 months. And I've found in businesses that once you get to about a year, you're up to a million dollars. Uh, and it doesn't take long at all. I, I, many of the frauds that I've investigated have been in excess of a million dollars. And a lot of them started out simply with somebody taking with the idea they're going to put it back, and then they don't. They get, they get in trouble and it's a stress for them it pressures them it must be a miserable existence to wake up like that every day knowing that you've done this and this is hanging over your head but and
1: you have to cover yourself you know every day right
0: absolutely you know one lie compounds to another lie and pretty soon you've forgotten how many lies you've told and what you've lied about it's it's just a miserable life it's a miserable way to live mhm mhm
1: so misappropriation was number 1 what are some other types of fraud that that a typical kind of small business owner with one to 50 or 100 or 200 employees may
0: tend to kind of see? Well, typically what I'll see with smaller businesses, and by the way, smaller businesses tend to experience higher losses. And businesses with under 100 employees are almost half of all the fraud cases. Uh, The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners does a survey um, every two years. This year was 2000 cases. And over 40% of the cases involved small businesses under 100 employees, and they had the highest individual losses. I mean, it was very immediate. What typically happens to them is that small business owners are very good at the business that they're in. If I'm a doctor, I'm very good at practicing medicine. If I'm a dentist, I'm very good at practicing dentistry. They're not typically thinking about the things that they need to manage the business on a day-to-day level. And so they'll turn it over to a bookkeeper. Usually it's one person, somebody that they've known for a while, somebody, maybe a family member. And they allow that person to take complete control of the business. All the money that comes in, skimming, you know, they'll, they'll take the money before it ever gets put on the books, or they'll find a way to get money to themselves by writing checks to themselves, and hiding it under another account. Um, very, very common. So what I always tell small business owners is that if you want to protect yourself, the thing you should watch most closely is that you know where the money's being spent. Control the disbursements. If you're writing checks, you should write them and sign them. You should put them in the mail. If you're doing wire transfers or you're doing, you know, electronic payments, you should be the one that controls that. It's the easiest, most effective control for small businesses to prevent it. A lot of them don't do it. And I see them all the time. And it's very, it can be devastating. Puts them out of business. On. So,
1: but but what if let's say the owner has a company credit card and maybe another key employee has a company credit card? Certainly, those charges can be tracked, and we know what was purchased with the owner's card and what was purchased with the um, with with the uh, the key employee's card. So, is that not a a sufficient measure, or or can can the fraudster find a way around that?
0: Oh, the frauds are going to find a way around it. And, and I would, you you bring up an excellent point. It depends on the evidence that they're looking at. I did an investigation at a charitable organization. If I said the name, you'd know it. It's an international organization. Their bookkeeper who'd been with them for 20 years embezzled over half a million dollars in a period of about two years. Wow. And one of the methods that she used, and she did everything. She was writing checks to herself. She was skimming cash that was coming in. They had credit cards for people in their organization. She would pay all the bills, so she was the master Card holder, and she had a card that no one else knew about. There were three or four people who had credit cards. The charges would come in, and she would just take a pair of scissors and cut out the charges related to her card, tape it back together again, and somebody would look at it and say, oh, I owe uh, $12,000 on our credit cards this month, and they'd approve it without actually footing it to make sure that it added up. She was stealing significant amounts of money this way, and I can and see how that
1: can work indefinitely. Oh, indefinitely, no question.
0: She was just altering the documentation, and it's really easy to do. Which is why you don't want one person controlling
1: everything. Well, and nowadays with Adobe and all the different digital, it'd be even easier to 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 doctor uh, documents, right?
0: Yes, we were talking about expense reports earlier. One of the biggest frauds I ever found on an expense report was a guy who was probably taking $200,000 a year, a very big company. Uh, And one of the ways he did it was they had a corporate and all of the expenses would be automatically populated in the expense report, but they allowed people to expend cash purchases up to $25 without a receipt and they could use their personal credit card. Well, all of his cash expenditures were just made up. And he created phony receipts. Like one cab receipt would just be a blank card, like you get from the cab driver, and he just photocopy it, write a new amount in, new date, scan it into the system, and that would substantiate his uh, his expenditure. You can't really rely on what people are telling you. You've got to go to third parties for the quality of the evidence to be any good.
1: That is just ridiculously uh, ridiculous, scary stuff. Which I guess my next question is how does, so like you said, the small business owner is good at their trade. The doctor is good at medicine. The dentist is good at dentistry. I don't think you take a fraud prevention class in dental school or any other type of school, probably. So no, you without going to the extreme of being, you know, living in paranoia and thinking everybody's out to get you, not trusting anybody, how do you prevent fraud from happening? And, and, and I think even in We mentioned medical professionals. I guess, you know, there's there potentially are narcotics available as well in medical offices, which if you could figure out a way to steal money, you can figure out a way to steal narcotics, probably. So before we learn even more about detecting and preventing fraud in your business, I have two offers and one request for you. Offer number one is if there's anything that is keeping you up at night, any financial questions, anything that you want to talk about with regard to your money, email me, david at parallelfinancial.com. That's david at parallelfinancial.com. Um, offer number two is if uh, selling your business has ever been a concern of yours, uh, go to my website, www.allofmyassets.com. Take the value builder questionnaire. It can tell you a general range of what your business is worth, and it can also tell you uh, what you can do to improve your business so that you can sell it for a higher multiple when you're ready to sell or just have an easier and more profitable life today. And then my request, if you've gotten any value from the podcast, if you've learned anything or if you've uh, enjoyed it, uh, share it with somebody today, uh, send the link to them, tell them about the Weekly Wealth Podcast, and I would greatly appreciate it. Now back to the podcast.
0: You absolutely can, and it absolutely does happen. Or prescription pads. Or not, how many doctors will allow someone in their office to write prescriptions on their pads. Narcotics are controlled very tightly with numbered prescription pads and so forth, but they still give control of these sometimes because they're busy and they trust them. So, to prevent yourself from being victimized by this kind of fraud or any kind of fraud as a small business owner, the one thing I suggest to people is to just be skeptical. Uh, It's not. And I don't like
1: that because I want to trust people. And and I guess that's a good thing and a bad thing,
0: right? It's human nature. In fact, I call it the trust trap. In the absence of trust, there can be no fraud. If I can't get you to trust me, I can't cheat you. Uh, And nobody wants to think that somebody that we've known and loved and trusted for years would ever take from us, but that's precisely the person who's going to do it. And it's human nature to trust people. That's how human society evolved was through trust. But You can't rely on it as an internal control and you have to be aware of the possibility that people will play games. Bad things happen to otherwise good people. Might put them in a position where they'll do something they wouldn't. So if you're a small business owner, make sure you know where the money's going. You should write the checks. You should do the disbursements online if you can. If you have one bookkeeper and you don't want to do that, bring in another bookkeeper to do bank reconciliations or just look at the accounts like once a quarter. That'll help you out. Be skeptical of anybody that you're dealing with, at least to a degree. Let trust evolve, certainly, but make sure that you understand who you're doing business with and you understand the business that they're doing. You know, so many of the Ponzi schemes that we've seen, Bernie Madoff is a great example, all the others, involve affinity scams. You know, it's they, they prey on certain groups of people who share a common interest. Perhaps it's a religion. Perhaps it's an ethnic group. Perhaps it's a political mm-hmm. affiliation. Or club. they pull them all together and these people know this person. They say, all of my friends trust this person. Perhaps I should too. But they really don't know what's going on behind the scene. And that's what you've got to, that's what you have to be aware of. You've got to understand but if I that.
1: like you, because we have something in common, some either, like you said, ethnic uh, group or or even sports team, so I like you because we have in something in common, I'm going to be much more likely to trust you, which Absolutely. then creates the opportunity for fraud to take place.
0: Absolutely true. Wow. Absolutely. true. Yeah, it's um, Ponzi schemes are probably one of the biggest threat to individuals. So
1: what's the definition of a Ponzi scheme? Because we hear Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, and but but what exactly is a Ponzi scheme kind of at its core?
0: Sure. Uh, Are you familiar with pyramid schemes? Yes. The pyramid schemes, they used to have pyramid parties. A long time ago, people were going to these parties, and everybody would put in a little bit of money, and you'd go find somebody else to bring money in. That money would all come up to you, and basically, you'd work your way through the top of the pyramid with all the people who they recruited you know, being paid out of the new funds. Ponzi schemes are basically pyramid schemes, except people don't know they're pyramid schemes. Mm -hmm. They're unaware of it. So new investment money comes in, and instead of being used for the purpose that the Ponzi scheme operator tells you, he's just putting that money in in his pocket. And the new investors are being used to pay the returns to the existing investors. So they have to keep growing this thing in order to make it keep working. And And I guess for a little
1: while, it it looks like it's working.
0: It absolutely looks like it's working. Yes. I mean, and as long as you, you... In Bernie Madoff's case, he was able to run this thing for decades because he wasn't promising exorbitant returns. The thing that should have alerted people was, hey, you don't get a consistent 15% without ever losing money. So as long as he could keep growing it and paying that 15%, he was fine. And then all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of the economy and he was in trouble. I forget who it was that said when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. Bernie was swimming naked. He had no way out. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. it's, but that's, did I answer that question? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you absolutely did. There was, so I'm in, I'm in Oconee County, South Carolina. And um, I don't know if it was 10, 15 years ago, there was a, a group called Carolina investors and um, they were promising 13, 14% guaranteed returns and uh, tens of millions of dollars ended up gone. And this was you know, little little old lady and 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 Farmer John's hundred thousand dollar retirement, and they're gone. All of it's gone. So it's not like it was, uh, somebody had fifty million dollars, lost a hundred thousand. These were just small town good people that were wiped out, and that money's gone. And I think that was a Ponzi scheme, and it was fraudulent. And I don't know what the intention was if it if it started out legit, and he just couldn't meet up to the to the um, guarantees and had to start fudging, or if it just started out totally with bad intentions, but the end result is a lot of people lost their entire life saving at a time in life where they don't have time on their side to make it back.
0: And and that's absolutely true. It's the tragedy of fraud. And by the way, this is one of the things that is different about Ponzi scheme operators and other types of fraudsters. They tend to be sociopaths. They don't really care about anybody else. They have Hmm. no feeling or emotional connection to any of their victims. Unlike the people who get in trouble with gambling or drugs or alcohol, these people start out to steal money, and they want to take as much as they can every day. And they'll say or do whatever they have to say or do to get you to give them what they want. Um, they're, I have less sympathy for these people than I do any of my other fraudsters, though on some level, they're all pretty, pretty sad. So mm-hmm. That's a big difference between them and, and other types of fraudsters. Interesting,
1: okay. so we talked about having the owner kind of at least having kind of the final control over over money that's leaving the business. We talked about having a healthy skepticism for the people around you and especially until it's earned, but still having controls in place., um, what are some other ways that? Small business owners have been defrauded and, and some ways to to mitigate the 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 opportunity for that to happen. I've always heard that if someone never takes a vacation, that means they're afraid to be gone for a couple of days, which means that they're they covering some things up. Either that or they're a real, really hard worker, but no, nobody's that hard of a worker.
0: You're absolutely right. And there certainly are signs for people. They're called red flags of fraud. You know, we said we couldn't do anything about it the immediate need or the ability to rationalize. But there are signs that fraudsters are doing what they do. The most common sign is somebody who lives beyond their means, Uh, someone who never takes a vacation. Very often fraudsters have to be there every day to conceal the fact that they're stealing. And some frauds are uncovered by accident when the person gets sick, goes to the hospital, can't make it, Uh, to work one day and all of a sudden somebody else is doing the doing the books and, you know, hey, what's this? So looking for those little red flags, living beyond the means is one that is certainly there. Gambling. If you see somebody who's going to Vegas every week to to play at the casino, they're losing, especially if they're flying them in for free and they're comping them for hotels and meals. You know, Vegas doesn't fly winners in for free and they know as long as they can keep you at that table, you're going to lose money. Somebody people can't afford to do that if they're yeah. working for, for a living. So I yeah,
1: had the what... worst thing happen to me with regard to gambling in my 20s. I had a, a friend that liked to gamble. We flew to Atlantic City. I brought like two hundred dollars with me and I came home with two thousand. So that's a bad thing to happen the first time, because you think, <laughs> how come all these other idiots are losing? They're not smart like me. So we go back and I brought two or $300 with me. And then the best thing happened is I lost all two or 300, which in, in the scheme of things was not a lot of money. And then that's it. I don't need to gamble. It, you know, I, I got lucky the first time and it was fun, but um, it can be very dangerous gambling for sure.
0: The Best thing that happened was you, that you recognized that you couldn't keep winning and you stopped. Well, I had a
1: strategy too, I said, I will not, if I lose, I, you know, this will be a fun guy's weekend, but I'm not going to try to win back what I lose because that's when you dig a deeper hole.
0: Right, right, absolutely right. Yeah, so you mentioned the vacations before, just a follow up point on that. You want to make sure that people take vacations, you know, make them do it, make them take a day off once in a while. Uh, take a look at what they're doing and maybe do what they're doing sometime just to check to make sure that, you know, things are working the way they should. But lots of little red signs, little red flags that you can look for. Uh, you should look for them. Segregate duties, make sure that one person can't initiate and complete a transaction without getting somebody else involved if it's just you and perhaps a bookkeeper make sure that the bookkeeper can get invoices but can't write the checks okay. or that you're looking at you know what you're doing the bank reconciliation to make sure the checks are going where the bookkeeper says they're going okay. uh, those are the kinds of things to look out
1: fascinating fascinating stuff and it's like you said, there can be tens or hundreds or millions, thousands or millions of dollars gone. So that's one of the risks of being in business. And there are times when that money's just gone, it's written off and and um, the owner still has to figure out a way to make expenses, which means they're either borrowing money to make up or they're taking less profit themselves, or there may be no profit um, or there's no capital expenditure. So this is something, I think it's a a, a, um, incredibly important pseudo financial planning topic for business owners. Cause if you can prevent major fraud, you can, you, that's just, it, it's a tremendous amount of money. And then also there's also the soft costs. Anytime that that something for lack of a better term, bad happens, you have the stress, you may have anger and all these internal mo- um, emotions that are just not good. So it'd be much better if we can prevent the fraud from happening than to have it happen, find it, be mad, f- feel hurt, have the stress, which which is not good for any of our emotions or physical health.
0: It's it's absolutely true. And, I, and I'll add one more point to this before I, I do a follow-up on this. And that's uh, another thing that small business owners can do is have a fidelity bond on their employees so that if they do steal, you can be reimbursed. Many businesses that I've seen have experienced fraud when they have insurance Insurance will cover the amount of the fraud and also the cost to find at the investigation. But in order to make that work, you've got to be aware that fraud can happen to you. And you've got to think about, you know, how you're going to, to manage your business. Small businesses, I've seen it put small business owners out of business completely frauds. Um, there have been cases where, you know, the estimate is 5% of every dollar that comes in the door. That's about four and a half trillion dollars a year. And that comes wow. right out of the bottom line. Yeah, I've actually taken much more than that. Uh, cost headphones back in two thousand nine. Their bookkeeper stole more money than the company made. Wow. They were, they were. She was stealing three million dollars a year. They weren't reporting three million a year in net income. Sure. Uh,
1: Can we call time theft just kind of wasting time, chit chatting? Is that fraud? Is that not fraud? Is that kind of the same thing? Or, or it's it's a, mor- it's a it's a
0: form of fraud course I mean technically stealing office supplies and pencils you know would would fall into it now there comes a point where you have to say okay what am I willing to to accept and what am I not you know I mean some how much sin are you willing to live with when people are cheating on expense reports all the time I'd worry about that right people who are stealing time I mean I'm not talking about stopping at the water cooler to have a conversation right. and nobody
1: can work eight straight hours
0: of course right but people who consistently steal lots of time and aren't coming to work. Uh, it's been it's been a big problem for many businesses now because of the pandemic and telecommuting. Mm-hmm. They don't have any way of knowing whether their employees are actually doing what they're doing. You know, some things are easy yeah. if you're a salesperson, others not so much.
1: I was at the Financial Planning Association annual uh, symposium for our state. And one of the advisors was talking about how um, somebody within their firm uh, they were working remotely during Covid. They quit their job. they 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 forgot to tell their employer that they quit. They got a new job, so they were getting paid for two jobs for a while. and until the one firm <laughs> realized, wait, this person isn't doing anything.
0: Uh, the the same company that had the uh, guy with the expense reports who stole a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I also found employees there that had two and three jobs in some cases. They were working remotely. Nobody knew where they were or what they were doing. And they were collecting three paychecks, working for competitors in some cases. So it's wow. just, it it happens. Wow. It happens.
1: Unbelievable. So tell us about your role in the industry. I know that you do speaking engagements. Do you work with companies directly or kind of, because this is fascinating what you do for a career. And it's just, uh, you know, I'd like to learn more about it.
0: Well, thank you. I um. I had my own practice for about 10 years, and I focused exclusively on helping my clients prevent, detect, and investigate fraud. And I will do some of that again. I'm focusing now more on speaking and writing and and teaching other people how not to let this happen to them. But my role has always been to sort of make people aware of the problem. What I found was that when I spoke about fraud, inevitably, somebody would come up to me and say, oh, my God, you scared me. Can you come and talk to me? I think that's happening where I work. Uh, it's how I found my fraudster at the charity that stole half a million bucks. They relate to the stories. And I can help people identify when it's happening. I can also help people prevent it from happening by putting controls in place. Uh, if anybody has a fraud, if anybody suspects they have a problem, I'd be happy to talk to them. I used to do broad risk assessments for businesses. I and mean, then look at their operations and say, okay, where does your fraud risk exist? And what are you doing to mitigate it? And I would conduct those for them.
1: Um, yeah. And so, how would somebody find you on the internet or, or contact you?
0: Yeah. I um, You can reach me at my uh, email address, john at tonsick.com. I have a website that I'm just now updating. I'm uh, just getting back into my speaking and, and consulting work. Uh, So that'll be john, that'll be tonsic.com www.tonsic.com. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody out there who would like to, uh, who would like to to chat about this. Awesome.
1: Well, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. It's, it's empowering, but it's also scary to know that some of the people that you can trust the most can be the ones that can take the most from you. If you don't have some, some simple and just common sense controls in place. So I, I appreciate some of uh, some of some of your comments. But uh, but we are the Weekly Wealth Podcast, and uh, you and I talked and we prepared for this episode. But I frauded you and I did not tell you the last question I was going to ask you because I like to put people on the spot. So as the <laughs> Weekly Wealth Podcast, we talk about the mindsets, the tactics, and the strategies that can help you to build and maintain wealth. So, John Tonsic, what is your definition for you, for your family, for the people around you? What is your definition of wealth? What does wealth mean to you?
0: I tend not to think of wealth purely in financial terms. I mean, obviously, I want to be able to fund the lifestyle that I have with my family and my and my children and grandchildren. That is the most important thing in my world, and and I'm I've, I've retired from a job. I'm semi-retired, I guess, in the sense that I'm still doing this practice and I'm still speaking, but I really want to maintain a lifestyle that allows me to live the way I'm living and spend time with my my children and grandchildren. To me, that's the definition of success. That's that's where I want to be. Everybody's going to have a different goal. As a financial planner, I'm sure you know this. I mean, there are some people who are out there to try and accumulate as much as they possibly can. I've never been like that. I've never been motivated by those things. Um, You know, I think uh, envy is the thief of joy. So I don't look at everybody. I don't look at everybody who's more successful than I am financially and say, boy, I wish that was you. Um, It just, it just doesn't push my buttons.
1: Yeah. So almost, well, nobody has ever answered that question with a dollar amount. Um, so nobody's ever said a million, five million, ten million. 10 million. When I have that amount, I'll be wealthy. And just about everybody who answers the question, gives some sort of, some form of freedom, which is in essence, what you said, you know, I'd like to have time to, to be with my grandkids, but of course, grandkids aren't cheap. They want expensive crap that you got to pay for. <laughs> um, you know, and you can also just have fun with grandkids, just going for a walk in the park, or you can spend thousands and thousands going to Disney world. So, um, so having that freedom is is very very important, and that's uh, that's what most people say. And that's those are the people I like working with. I don't like the people who just want to accumulate money for the sake of accumulating money.
0: It's they scare me a little bit, you know. I, it's, uh, if they that's sense. your well, if they
1: scare you, then I'm definitely going to watch out for them because uh, <laughs> you've been you've been chasing after these people for decades. So. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Exactly.
0: Awesome. awesome.
1: So, John, this this has been really an interesting and a unique episode that I, quite frankly, learned a lot from. There are things that that I can improve uh, for my business. Um, I hope that everybody who is um, uh, who's a business owner just take some of these warnings to heart and look for some of those red flags and uh, make sure that you're putting some controls in place so that you can prevent or or reduce the chance of major fraud. So any any closing closing words, closing advice before we shut the show down?
0: I couldn't sum it up any better than you just did, David. I think that's exactly right. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I certainly did. This was a very nice conversation, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your your listeners.
1: Absolutely. Next time we'll have to do a video version and post it on YouTube and and see some magic tricks as well. So I'd uh, be happy to do that. (laughs) Cool stuff. Cool stuff. Okay, everybody. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode and remember to like, and subscribe to uh, the podcast and tell your friends if you're getting any value from the show. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks. The information contained herein, including but not limited to research, market valuations, calculations, estimates, and other material obtained from Parallel Financial and other sources, are believed to be reliable. However, Parallel Financial does not warrant its accuracy or completeness. The materials are provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. Past performance is not indicative of future results.